Coming up on Shoppers Politics. My daughter and I spent an hour or two this morning making Molotov cocktails from the petrol that's usually used for the lawnmower. I'm Christopher Hope, The Telegraph's associate editor, and this is Chopper's Politics. Well, it's been just five days since Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine, launching attacks by air, sea and land. And in that time, Russia's been strangled by sanctions and the world has watched on as Ukrainians from all backgrounds arm themselves and brace against war. Later, we'll be hearing from a British businessman battling with the idea of joining the civilian defence of his adopted country. And our correspondent in Kharkiv is watching the crisis all unfold. He'll be here with an update. But first, last week, we put out an episode looking at how Britain should react to Russian aggression in Ukraine. And as you do every week, we tweeted about it and we got a reply from our Ukrainian MP. That's right, Inna Sovson, the deputy leader of one of the opposition parties in the Ukrainian parliament, tweeted simply, we need help. Well, we couldn't ignore that appeal, so we gave Inna a ring. Inna Sovson, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Now, you're in Kiev and you're in the dark. Why is that? Well, because we are uh, currently under air raid uh, strike alert. Uh, it's been put off uh, as of now, so I can speak to you. Uh, but uh, we've been going in and out of basement for the whole evening right now. This is our new reality. So we are trying to turn off lights uh, when the attacks are starting so that uh, the houses are not visible in the dark. And of course, we're talking to you at around 10.20 at night time. So normally you'd have lights on, but you're, this is the new reality you have here of fearing attacks from Russian jets. Uh, from Russian jets, from Russian missiles, uh, from Russian infiltrators entering the cities all over Ukraine, uh, just uh, randomly shooting at people. Uh, I still can't believe this is really happening, but it actually is. Uh, this is the new reality we are living in now. And I'm, I'm here in Kiev, uh, and I've been in Kiev since the war started. But I'm reading the terrible accounts of what is happening now in my native city of Kharkiv. As we speak right now, it is being shelled, bombed, and basically destroyed by Russians. And it is a two million people just east of Ukraine, 40 kilometers away from the Russian border. And uh, the, the news from there are just terrifying. I'm, I'm really scared to read the final reports of the casualties uh, that we shall probably get in the morning. But as we uh, speak, I just read on the news that at least three children were killed in Kharkiv just this evening. And that adds up to, well, 16 children that were killed uh, by Russians uh, here by yesterday evening. So that is the, the account of human suffering here in uh, Ukraine, which has been attacked uh, atrociously by, by Vladimir Putin and Russia. It just seems in, insane what Putin is doing. If, if you're invading a country where you think that some people might welcome the invasion, maybe people in the east of the country. Why Why bomb those cities? Uh, because no one actually is welcoming the invasion mm -hmm. because Putin was trying to create this image of Ukraine being divided, that Ukraine is somehow divided by those who speak Ukrainian and Russian. 
that I'm seeing soldiers on the east, soldiers on the west, uh, civilians on the west, on the east here in Kiev, regardless of the language they speak. And, and lots of people on the east do speak Russian, but uh, they are uh, yelling, they're fighting, they're engaging directly with the Russians and telling them to get out of here. So this image of uh, Ukraine as being divided by Ukrainian and Russian speakers is completely wrong because right now Russian speakers are fighting the Russians as much as the Ukrainians, probably even more. And there were many videos uh, in, uh, that are available right now where people are saying in Russian to the Russians, get out of here, we don't want you here, we are at a different stage, just get out of our land. You've come on our podcast because you tweeted Last week, didn't you, after you listening to the last week's podcast, we had uh, James Heapy, who's the Armed Forces Minister, and he was saying how, well, the problem is that the UK, NATO, can't get involved in the no-fly zone over Ukraine because the problem is that that might engender some degree of um, battle between Russian forces and NATO forces, and then you get into a World War Three situation. Do you understand that? Uh, we do understand that. But I think what the West needs to understand is that we are basically in the World 3 uh, situation right now and that the Russians are willing to attack other countries as well. You must have heard already that Putin did say that he doesn't like the idea that Poland is in NATO, that Hungary is in NATO. He does have issues with Finland right now. So, so there is nowhere where he can be stopped as of this moment. I think he's completely going mad and he is out of control. So he is not just a threat to Ukraine, he is actually a threat to the whole of Europe and the world. And, and you're an MP, aren't you, in the Ukrainian parliament, is that right? Yes, I'm a member of parliament from the opposition, Holos Party. So now when I will say this, uh, this is important, we do stay united regardless of the political forces, apart from a political party which uh, is pro-Russian, which uh, the members of parliament from that party, they just disappeared into night, we don't know where they are. But all the other members of parliament, regardless of their political affiliation, are staying here in Ukraine and doing everything possible. Lots of them are joining the battles on the ground. Lots of uh, fellow MPs are joining the territorial defense. Uh, we we have this movement of territorial defense and we had about 100,000 people signing up for territorial defense as of yesterday evening. Uh, those are just volunteers who are signing up and saying, like, we shall be patrolling the streets. We are willing to engage. We are willing to be staying on the checkpoints. Uh, uh, just let us uh, help in any way possible. And that does include my dad. So so my dad, uh, it, he took my mom to the west of Ukraine. And uh, he uh, did uh, say that uh, I am coming back to Kiev. I am coming back to protect uh, the capital of Ukraine, even though he is 61 years old and mm -hmm. he does have problems with his health but he said like i'm not giving up this is my land and i want everyone out so um yeah that is the reality here in ukraine that everyone is trying to help in any way possible including the members of parliament like i'm, I'm doing this i'm talking to the international audience uh, as much as i can other people are arranging logistics for humanitarian aid patrolling the streets uh, i do have some friends who are MPs who are in the army uh, my boyfriend is with the army so I just want the, 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 well, your audience to understand is that we don't expect someone else to fight our battles. We are fighting so much. And, and I think um, we are giving hell to the Russians here. Russians didn't expect such a strong resistance on the Ukrainian side. We're just asking for support from the West so that we can 
win in this war sooner rather than later and with less casualties. And in a Sovson, are you getting the help you need? When you tweeted at us last week, you said we need help in block capitals. And then you said you need competitive weapons that can destroy aircraft and tanks, more stingers, NLAWS and javelins. These are weapon types. Are you getting what you need now in terms of weapons? Uh, we are getting uh, more and more weapons uh, as uh, uh, as we speak. They, uh, it is arriving. We were actually getting uh, supplies uh, uh, prior to the war. We are grateful to Britain. I just want everyone in the UK to know that we are grateful for the support for the end laws that we got for, for, for other weapons. We need more. As, as I said, just within a couple of days, 100,000 people joined the territorial defense units. They do need weapons. They need protective gear. They need uh, all the equipment in order to, to stay safe and to protect our cities, towns and villages. So, so we are asking for more weapons. That is our big uh, ask number one. And then the second big thing that we're asking for is is full full scale sanctions on Russia. And I know that there have been lots of sanctions already, but I think we 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 are still asking for more. So so it's important for everyone listening to this to understand that Putin, as crazy as he is, he will continue to fight as long as he he can sustain this war. And even now, when Russian economy is feeling the effect of the sanctions already imposed, the sanctions uh, that will actually uh, make him stop are the sanctions that uh, will make it not sustainable to continue this war economically. And that is why we're asking for a full-scale trade embargo with Russia. Because right now, every single dollar, pound, euro that is being sent to Russia is basically being used to buy weapons with which they're killing Ukrainians every day now. There's a tank column heading towards Kiev at the moment, which is 17 miles long, we see in reports. Is that what you're worried about? I mean, is, is it the Battle of Kiev that's coming? Well, the Battle of Kiev has been going on for five days now. They are trying to enter on tanks from different directions. They did try to enter from the north. There were major battles taking place about 40 kilometers north from Kiev. They did try to enter from the northwest um, as of today, there were several battles uh, in that direction. Uh, we are, uh, well, trust me, we are using the weapons that were provided by the Western powers uh, and Turkey and, and other countries, other, other countries that are helping Ukraine, uh, putting them to very good use to destroy those tanks. Uh, I, I haven't seen the, the most recent account, but I, we, we, we destroyed more than 100 tanks uh, from Russia. But I think the numbers are growing uh, like every minute. Uh, because uh, we are using the, the, the Turkish weapons we got, the Bayraktars, and then some, the weapons we got from, from the Brits uh, and, and other countries. Uh, so uh, Russian tanks and invasion on tanks has not been uh, very successful. So they are not uh, very motivated. So as of now, all entrances towards Kyiv have been blocked uh, by Ukrainian army. They are trying to get closer. There are more and more uh, tanks coming in. Uh, but uh, they have not been successful in getting uh, closer to the city for the past five days. They are facing uh, resistance, and that is, again, Im- important to understand. They are facing resistance not just from uh, from the army, not just from the territorial defense, but also from uh, regular civilians. Like, people are making Molotov cocktails and using them to destroy tanks. The official accounts of the parliament, the official accounts of the police, uh, are given instructions on how to make Molotov cocktails. Are you making them yourself, uh, Inna? In Have you made them yourself? I, I think I, I, I talked to like 
15 or 16 <laughs> international media outlets during the day. So so that is basically what I am doing uh, all the time, constantly. <laughs> but I do know uh, people who are making them. I, I've read that uh, there is this amazing, just amazing level of self-organization uh, from uh, from the Ukrainian people where uh, I'm reading uh, posts on, on social media where chemistry students are saying, like, okay, we don't know how to fight, but we are chemistry students. We know how to make Molotov cocktails, so we will be making those. And then some uh, lady who is an owner of a fancy restaurant saying, like, I don't know how to fight, but I do have 200 bottles that can be used for Molotov cocktails. Let me know where I should deliver them. Uh, there are uh, all the ladies inviting Russian soldiers for cups of tea. And while the Russian soldiers are having tea in their houses, the territorial defense units are destroying their tanks. There are videos of people just driving past Russian tanks, throwing Molotov cocktails and, and just driving away very fast, uh, waiting for, for the tank to explode. Uh, in the south of Ukraine, the Russians claimed that they took control over the city of Berdyansk. And I mean, it, hundreds of people went to the central square to protest against that. Can you imagine that? People without any arms, they just went to protest. And that is a Russian-speaking city. That is crucially important to understand, like, like to what, uh, you know, uh, that, that this narrative created by Putin is completely a lie that, that, mm. that Russian speakers want him here. They went to protest against people that have arms, that have tanks, uh, and they just kicked them out of the building. So this is the level of resistance that dictator like Putin simply couldn't have imagined. How do you think, how do you think it might end in a... Can, can it end by the Ukrainian people forcing the Russians to withdraw? I mean, the, the, the volume, the scale of what they have in terms of military hardware surely means that's not possible. But the, the spirit of the people is so strong. So uh, it's, it's very difficult to predict what uh, will be happening. Uh, we do tr remain optimistic because uh, Putin was thinking that he will be fighting the Ukrainian army. Um, mm. And Ukrainian army is clearly smaller than the Russian army. Russian army is about 1 million people. The Ukrainian army is about 215,000 and then 60,000 more of uh, the National Guard. But in fact, he's not just fighting the Ukrainian army. He is fighting the whole of Ukrainian people, which is 40 million. So, so when you take that into account, the numbers are actually in our favor. And the morale is so much higher here in Ukraine. Mm. And uh, at the same time, the Russian soldiers are extremely demotivated. They don't know what they're doing, why they're here, why they were sent basically to die here. They are seeing that uh, the number of casualties on the Russian side, was, as of this morning, was over 5,000. Mm. So they've lost 5,000 men in five days of war, which is way, way more than uh, Ukrainian military um, losses. Uh, Ukrainian military losses were at 200 or something um, as of the uh, last evening. So, so Putin doesn't care not just about Ukraine, he doesn't care about uh, Europe, he doesn't care about the Russian people. So I think that the best case scenario that we are seeing is just Russian people taking him down. So Putin needs to be stopped and legitimately Russian people are the only one that can, can do that. Yeah. So the sanctions that are being imposed, they do have influence on uh, the political leadership of Russia, but they also have the strongest influence possible on the Russian population. And our uh, expectation is that the Russian population will just uh, realize 
how harmful this war is and, and that they will have to impeach Putin just to, to stay alive as a country. And just finally, in a Sovsin, are you willing to fight yourself against the Russians? Um, I think, uh, well, if I have to, I will. I'm not surrendering. I'm not giving up. Uh, there is no reason for me to give up. There is no reason for Ukrainian army to surrender. We are actually winning uh, as of now. And uh, if time comes to that, even though I don't have any military background, I'm a university professor, I, I now very much rely upon Ukrainian army, upon well, my boyfriend, my dad, my, my other friends who are in the army to do the job that they know how to do best. But if it comes to that, it is my city. Like I don't, I wouldn't allow those damn soldiers just come and take over my city. I live here. My son was born here. I'm, I'm, I'm staying in, and I will fight. Uh, I, I hope not till I die. I hope that uh, uh, well, we'll get the support we need from the West, and that will stop all those atrocities. But uh, I have to do this. I'm, I'm here with my people, and I'm staying here. Well, Inna Solston, thank you for joining us on such a difficult time for you tonight. And we do appreciate it. And we send all our very best to you and, and stay safe. Inna Solston there from Kiev. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Do stay with us, listeners. We'll be talking to the Telegraph's man on the ground in Ukraine, Roland Oliphant. Plus, we'll hear from Peter, a British businessman now facing the Russians in Ukraine. Right after this. Was Churchill the hero of the Second World War or a racist imperialist whose actions led to the Bengal famine? Should his statue be protected or pulled down? And can we really judge the figures of the past with the attitudes of the present? Please do apply for permission to have the statue removed. My name is Stephen Edgington and if you're enjoying this podcast, you might like History Defended, a new series from The Telegraph. In each episode, a leading historian defends a controversial historical figure. I play devil's advocate. There are some times in wartime when incredibly difficult decisions of life and death have to be taken. Winston Churchill, Clive of India, Bomber Harris and Oliver Cromwell. Men whose actions still influence the world we live in today. Today is victory in Europe day. Search History Defended in the same place you're listening to this. Now, Kharkiv is Ukraine's second largest city with around half the population of the capital, Kiev. And fighting has reached its streets. It's been a focus of multiple attacks already so far this week. And it's where our senior foreign correspondent, Roland Oliphant, has been reporting from. Roland Oliphant, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Great to have you on. Now, until this morning, you were in Kharkiv. Is that right? That's right. That's right. We left this morning because I was looking at a map and I thought, you know what, I think the Russians are going to try and encircle this city and I didn't really fancy being stuck in a siege. So we left and while we were on the road, the news came through about this this ghastly grad rocket attack in the north of the city, which, which seems like, you know, the Kharkiv has been taking a battering for, what, five days now? Um Generally, they've avoided hitting, kind of deliberately hitting residential areas. This was a real, seems like a bit of a departure, really, a very grim departure, a turning point. When you say deliberately, now that, that's quite an in, in, inflammatory thing to say about, about the Russians, but you think they are now targeting civilian sites deliberately? 
Well, I mean, look, it, 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 it's a guess and an intuition. Right? You know, obviously, I don't actually know why somebody decided to fire a bunch of grad rockets straight into um, what was a busy residential area. These things are, they're inaccurate. They cover large areas. Right? They're, they're kind of area denial things. They're meant to use them in, in big open spaces against infantry, and it's meant to, you know, kind of wipe out large numbers of people and vehicles. Um, they're inaccurate. You, you, could, you could do this by mistake. But they've been, until now, they've been shelling Kharkiv quite carefully, and although they haven't managed to not hit anybody, and they have killed civilians already, there seemed to be this idea of minimizing collateral damage. And I think the reason they were doing that is because they imagined that because Kharkiv is a Russian-speaking city um, in which a lot of the people are basically ethnic Russians, they imagined that this city was going to fall to them like a, you know, a ripe apple falling off the tree, that they'd be welcomed with open arms. And it hasn't happened, and they've struggled. And there are just things going on now that make me think they're now taking the gloves off and they're resorting or they're about to resort to those to basically classic Russian doctrine, which emphasizes the use of what, you know, military analysts call long range fires, right? It means pounding things with artillery really ruthlessly to crush resistance. And we saw it in Grozny, in Chechnya, and we saw it in Syria when they did Aleppo and places like that. And if that's the, that, if that's what they're resorting to, it's really, really bad news. You said earlier there about that you feared the siege of Kharkiv because of the way the Russians are encroaching, I suppose, around the city. Is that still the case, do you think? Um, I think so. I mean, we've um, our colleague, Josie, in Washington has just been sitting on a briefing with, with a U.S. defense official who, who literally said to her, just as I got into Dnipro, that the Americans now believe the Russians are moving to surround it. Um, so it sounds like my, my intuition was correct. And it would make sense. It makes sense for two reasons, um, to play the armchair general for a second. If you want to take it and you want to siege it, it makes sense to, you know, cut all ways in and out to, um, you know, force a surrender, essentially, um, without having to engage in horrific kind of, you know, door-to-door fighting you know, to siege. The other thing is Kharkiv actually has a very good ring road, um, kind of M25 of its own. Which means if you wanted to take advantage of the logistics and the transport links to further your invasion to Ukraine, you could you could theoretically just surround the city, mask it off, and use that infrastructure um, to, to to head on uh, into the country. They haven't succeeded in that. I mean, they, they they kind of sent a tank column around the ring road on the first day, and it was destroyed by um, uh, by Ukrainian troops with British N-law weapons. Right. Um, uh, interestingly. Um, but I'm a, I, I do think that's probably what they're about to do now. Have you seen any Russians yet? I haven't. You know, I haven't. I've been very close to them and I didn't realize. Um, so they stormed into Kharkiv yesterday in an extremely strange way. They kind of sent they sent flying columns of light infantry in um, kind of the kind of the Russian equivalent of, a, of an armored Land Rover or a Humvee mm. um, straight into the city. And it was it was a shock. And they penetrated the defense at several points. They got quite close in. And then um, the Ukrainians just ambushed them. And they were all cut off and, and defeated and captured um, or killed. We went down you know, out to report in the middle of this yesterday. We got down to this spot where there were four of these armored vehicles with the Russian, you know, the Z. We've seen yeah. the Z everywhere yeah. on the Russian vehicles. Four, you know, four of these things with Zeds on, you know, locals like to come out in the street and watch this. This is a funny thing with urban warfare. You know, people sometimes come out, treat it as a spectator sport, um, even though it's incredibly dangerous. So I found these two old boys on a bench kind of watching it a bit like a cricket match, you know, share, sharing their opinions and so on and so forth. 
Russians. It's like, right, so, so who's, who's that down there, guys? Now, ah, that's the Russians. Are you joking? I said, ah, yeah, definitely. That's the Russians. Look at that's the Russians. I said, no, wait, hold on, hold on. You're telling me that's living Russians down there? Said, yeah, of course they are. I thought, my God. So, I, you know, get in the car and we went around the back and we popped around the corner. And then, of course, when we got closer to those vehicles, they're all shot up and the soldiers walking around them were Ukrainian soldiers in Ukrainian uniforms. And I thought, gosh, well, I nearly saw some Russians. It later turned out, I found out today, the Russians who escaped from those vehicles were holed up in a school about 200 meters from us. Um, and there followed, there followed an enormous firefight overnight in which that school was basically destroyed. Um, so I've been close to the Russians. I haven't yet seen them. But yeah, the, the, the fighting is getting, is getting nasty. And that's the big worry, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's what, where, at what point does Putin think, I'm not going as quickly as I want to? I mean, you've been reporting um, brilliantly for Telegraph about the frustrations which the Russians are feeling. Is that, is that what you worry about? Yeah, really. I, I am worried about that because I, I, I have this sense that they thought this was going to be a bit like Crimea, where they showed up and, a, you know, Ukraine was completely unprepared. Um, the military was demoralized. And also Crimea is, you know, very, very strongly pro-Russian. I mean, there was a, there's a case, a very controversial thing. There was a case for Crimea, basically. You know, um, and The Russians were literally welcomed as liberators there. Um, and in Donbass in in 2014, in that war, it was there was there was, there was some support as well. And they seem to have had this idea that all we've got to do is drive into a Russian-speaking city, and we're going to be welcomed with flowers and salt and bread, and and the rotten, corrupt Ukrainian state will just fade away, and that's all we've got to do. And, and it hasn't. And I think I think they're genuinely shocked by that. I think they're genuinely frustrated. Um, and I think they're likely, if Vladimir Putin decides he has to push forward, which I think he will, um, they're going to have to resort to this old-fashioned siege warfare to get stuff done. In fact, you know, you'd hope someone has tried something, they might retreat. I don't think Vladimir Putin can retreat from this. I think this is has the potential to unfold into an absolutely enormous disaster for Russia. And I think his presidency is on the line. I really, really genuinely do. Um, and, and I would not be surprised. I really would not be surprised. I can't believe I'm even saying this, having reported Russia for years and years and years, that there will be people in the elite in Moscow kind of working out how to get rid of this guy because he's gone mad. That's, that's, that's how I see things in Moscow at the moment. What do you think, just finally, on what NATO are doing and in, in Western countries? Now, they're, they're stopping at the border... They're arming Ukraine. They're not enforcing a, a no-fly zone. Is this the right approach? Um, is it the right approach? We can't have, no one can have a NATO on Russian war for obvious reasons, because it's World War Three and it's, you know, the end of the world is human life as we know it. We, we cannot have a war between nuclear armed powers. Um, that is clear. I think, I think, again, Russia has been pretty surprised by the, the unity that's been shown by the West after the invasion began, I think, I think beforehand there was a lot of vacillation. I think there was a lot of kind of good, reasonable grounds for Vladimir Putin to look at the kind of the things people were saying and think, well, the Germans aren't really on board with that. And then, and the French want to do their own thing. And, and, and the Italians are doing that and they still haven't listed what this enormous devastating package of sanctions is going to be. So I don't think they're really that unified at all. And they're just going to back 
back off like a flock of sheep if I come storming in. And actually, the opposite has happened. You know, we saw we saw the European Union talking about, you know, sending fighter jets to, to Ukraine. We've seen Germany has suddenly said it's going to spend 2% of its GDP on on defense. Um, it's 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 everything Vladimir Putin pretended that he was so upset about. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think the response from the West has been much stronger, actually, even than I expected. Well, Roland Oliphant, who's in Dnipro, southeast of Kiev, thank you for joining us today on Chopper's Politics, and please stay safe and come on again. It will be an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Chris. Roland Oliphant there. And for more of Roland's brilliant analysis and reporting, why not sign up to be a Telegraph subscriber if you aren't one already. Please go to telegraph.co.uk forward slash chopper to get your first month completely free of charge. Now, Ukraine, like any other country, has a large expat population, including, of course, Brits. Now, Peter Thompson has lived in Odessa, in the south of the country, for decades with his family. So what's it like being a British person in a foreign country when the Russians invade? Peter Thompson, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Great to have you on. Hi, Chris. We're talking via video link. Um, just quick, quickly for our listeners, how long have you been living in Ukraine and where are you from originally? Born in St Andrews in Fife in Scotland. I've been in Ukraine since uh, March 1993. And are, are you a dual national now with all that time in Ukraine? No, I still have a British passport but a Ukrainian residence permit. And what do you do for a living, Peter? Well, basically, I run a farming company. We, um, we, far, we rent and farm about 50,000 acres of land in, in the south of Ukraine, growing flour, oilseed rape, wheat and some soybeans and corn on irrigated land. And what's happening to your crops at the moment? I mean, is life even carrying on at all normally? Or? Well, there's nothing to harvest or plant at the moment. Um, we're in a, a sort of a, a quiet period in, in operations until the beginning of April when we usually start planting sunflower. So there's actually nothing going on in the farms. But four of our farms, uh, all of them in Kherson region in the south, are now in newly occupied territory. We have had no casualties on the farms and no loss to property yet, but uh, there's quite a lot of damage being done by Russian tanks running through the fields. And you have, you have friends down there, do you? You have friends who are dealing with that on a day-to-day basis? Uh, I have uh, about 400 employees of the group uh, who are most of them based on those farms in those villages and, uh, and, and, and they're just living as best they can at the moment. We've cut back everything that we're doing. We're basically just paying salaries, taxes, electricity and gas bills around the group and land rent where all the, the the farmland that we work on is rented and some of it is rented on a like we pay the rent every month so we keep on paying those uh, essential payments but everything else we're doing is stopped it's crazy isn't it so you're you're carrying on as best you can you put the company almost into a degree of uh, the temporary shutdown but keep it going yeah. i suppose by paying all the bills, but you're hoping it'll come back to normal at some point. Well, it would be nice to think that uh, around about the 7th, 10th of April, we could be out there planting sunflower. Goodness gracious, we, we all hope that here. Mm. Uh, you've now gone from Odessa to south of Kiev. Is, um, mm. is life going on 
any way normal? Are the bins being emptied? Are shops being restocked? Or is it a complete siege mentality at the moment? Um, I, have, I haven't been actually anywhere, but uh, uh, those who've been in shops tell me that there's no... Peter? Here we go. Spurs back. I'm here. Good, good. I can hear you. Good. Oh, gosh, poor you. <laughs> Lights went out. Peter, we're back. Uh, I should explain to listeners there, you disappeared because you had a power cut, didn't you? Yeah, we've been getting that for a couple of days now. Goodness, I was asking you there about uh, how life is, and you, you were describing how you had to leave Odessa and leave your hundreds of staff on the farms down there. How did that feel? Eh, not not, not the, the, the most pleasant moment in my life, but, uh, you know, it needs must. We um, removed all our corporate documentation and all the, uh, the the seals, the stamps. They are a safer place than the office in Odessa. But nowadays, with the communications that we've got, as long as the internet stays up, we can stay in constant contact with everybody. And when you say goodbye to your, your colleagues there, I mean, were they preparing to fight the Russians? <laughs> Um, I think we're all preparing to fight uh, one way or another. Um, my daughter and I spent an hour or two this morning making Molotov cocktails from the petrol that's usually used for the lawnmower and and took that down to the, like there's the, the, the local territorial defence people have set up a, a roadblock on the way into the village and uh, we've, we took down our... Uh, contribution in Molotov cocktails, which are very effective against the uh, armoured vehicles. So that's our, our bit done there. How many did you make, and, and how many will a tank of lawnmower petrol make? <laughs> I think we had about six or seven litres of petrol. So it, 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 we spun it out to 20, 20 wine bottles. So, so you dusted down the recycling and used the used the um, wine bottles for making Molotov cocktails. Extraordinary. In uh, in happier times, I make uh, quite a lot of cider at home. So we have these uh, oh the German beer, you know, the, the the top that's on a wire thing that you can you can reseal it. Oh yes. Yeah. So we're, uh, we we use those bottles, um, which is quite a good uh, a, a, a good vessel for for keeping Molotov cocktails in. Gosh, I mean, we're only laughing out of, out of nervousness, really, but it seems extraordinary that you might find yourself making petrol bombs to fight the Russians as little as a week ago. I'm sure you couldn't imagine that. Hey, couldn't imagine it, no. Um, that's the world we live in now. It's gone 180 degrees in the space of four days. Is your daughter a, a Brit too, or is, is she Ukrainian? Or um, She has a, a Ukrainian passport. She's uh, studying veterinary in uh, in Kiev, I mean she ha- she has the right to a British passport, but uh, she uh, she's a very intense Ukrainian patriot. And have you asked yourself what you will do if you come across Russian tanks coming towards you? <laughs> will you will you take up arms against them? Maybe take hold of a Molotov cocktail and throw it. <laughs> if I had one with me handy, yes, I would do. I don't have any firearms. Started carrying a fairly big hunting knife with me. I don't know what use that is against the tank, but um, it's there anyway. I know when we last spoke, um, before the Russian invasion, you were planning to do some form of training, weren't you, on the Saturday? Yes, uh, I'd already spoken to the territorial defence people in the county town here, 
Um, but uh, I've decided against it because really I need to be available for the farms, for the for the businesses, pretty much 24 hours a day. And, and as long as there's something to do there, something to work for. But, uh, you know, there, there may come a time when when that all goes and we need to go and fight and we'll do it. And you're not tempted to, to, to come home. I mean, you're, you're born in Scotland, as you say. You've been there for nearly three decades, but you, you are a Brit. Yeah. I mean, has that made you feel conflicted, I wonder? Uh, yes, but really, Chris, if I was to leave here, friends and employees and other relatives that couldn't leave with me, you know, leaving them all behind, I don't know if I could live with myself yes. for doing that. How, how do you get yourself into that mode of being, you know, you're a businessman, you run five farms, you've got 400 staff, and then suddenly you find yourself within days making Molotov cocktails and considering fighting the Russians. I mean, how do you get yourself into the psyche of doing that? It, uh, it comes very easily when you can hear artillery or ground-to-ground missiles or bombs falling within... 20 kilometres of your home. It doesn't take yeah. much effort at all. Uh, we hear on the TV these dull thuds, don't we, during the reporting, but what's it like to be there in person? I'd rather be somewhere else, but uh, here we are. It's not pleasant. It's quite, quite unsettling. And what's your, what's your message to anybody who hears this back home, Peter? You must have friends in, in Britain who may hear this. Support the National Bank of Ukraine. There are accounts there you can pay any currency to it's tested it works you know the money's going to go where it where it needs to go the second thing you can do is uh, sign a petition to ask nato to provide air cover for ukraine ukraine is desperately short of air cover and that would help avoid a much bigger humanitarian crisis than exists today. I mean, things are going to get worse and worse and worse. Russia's air supremacy is 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 a problem. Thank you, Peter. That's exactly the, the thing which we asked James Heapy, who's the Armed Forces Minister, mm-hmm. on this podcast last week, and he said they can't do that because that would draw Britain into a toe-to-toe war with Russia. Uh, it's not toe-to-toe. There's no need for feet on the ground. It can all be done in the air. But even then, you see, you have... He would argue, he would say to us, you have British jets, NATO badge jets being downed and then you're, you're drawing the UK into, a, into a, a conflict with Russia, whether in the air or the ground. Mm. Yes, it'll come to that eventually anyway, Chris. So you can start now before it gets closer or you can start later when they're in the Baltics or Hungary or, God help us, even Poland. Is that your message to politicians? You think that he's not going to... Certainly that's the, that's the concern, that he won't stop at uh, Ukraine... It won't stop at Ukraine, I can guarantee you. And Peter, just finally, how are you planning and living day to day? I mean, I can't see you now because you've had a power cut, mm. but are you, trying to, are you trying to treat each day normally? Or? Uh, I spend an awful lot of time online looking at uh, Twitter, keeping up to date with the news, um, keeping in contact with, uh, with all our staff um, who are uh, not going to the office now in Odessa, but they're um, working from home. And uh, try and keep physically active and uh, keep the family as active as well. 
Well, Peter, thanks for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics. And can we stay in touch? It'd be great to get back in touch over the next few weeks. And all our best from, from here at Telegraph to you in, in Ukraine. Look forward to it. Stay safe. And you, Peter. Bye now. Peter Thompson there. Well, I'll be interested in hearing your thoughts on what you've heard from my guest this week about the unfurling crisis in Ukraine and how it's affecting them personally. Do get in touch, just like Inna did, by tweeting me. I'm at Chopper's Podcast. Or email me, chopperspolitics at telegraph.co.uk. Thanks to my guests today, Inna Sovson, Peter Thompson, and of course, Telegraph's Roland Oliphant. And thanks to my producers, as ever, Giles Gear, Louisa Wells, and Theodora Luludis. But most importantly of all, thank you to you for listening. And of course, please do buy a copy of the Daily Telegraph where you can and if you can. You won't regret it. Until next time, though, cheerio. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.